just before we get to our, our text of scripture today, I thought today would be an important time uh, just to, to pause and recognize some of the shifts that, ha- that has happened in our neighbors to the south. As you, as you probably have heard, there was a, a court decision uh, on Friday, I think, where the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe versus Wade, which then now puts the, uh, yeah, we're excited about that. Excited about that. Uh, and, and I think as the church, uh, we're excited for the sake that uh, the, the unborn have greater protections, right? That's, that's, this isn't a political thing. This is something that we uh, see it as an issue of justice, an issue of, of life, the sanctity of life. But also, uh, we should see this in light of where our country is at. And so while I think we're excited, thankful for uh, the protections, now greater protections afforded the unborn in the U.S., here in Canada, in case you're, you're not familiar, we have no laws protecting uh, unborn babies in Canada. And so that means there's really no regulation for abortion. And that should grieve us uh, as a church uh, for the sake of, of the lives that's represented. So uh, as a church, we are supporting uh, like pregnancy concerns, which is seeking to, to help those with unplanned pregnancies. We need to make sure we do that, of course, with a lot of compassion, a lot of grace. These are difficult situations. But also, uh, I want to just stop and pray for our country that there would be a shift in hearts and minds, that we would value the things that God values, uh, beginning with human life. So let me pray for that before we, before we go on. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, it does grieve us as a church just to know that our culture is so far from you. And yet, this is not a surprise for us. You've told us that, that we are gonna be at odds with our culture, for we are, we are serving you, and, and those who are not are serving the, the things of this world. Lord, we're thankful for the court decision, Lord, simply because it affords greater protection for those who are so vulnerable. And so, Lord, we, we, we rejoice in that. But at the same time, uh, our hearts mourn for our own country uh, where unborn babies are not protected by any legal means. And so, Lord, we want to pray uh, for them. We pray, Lord, that there would be a shift in the morality of our, of our culture. Uh, but m- more than that even, Lord, we pray there'd be a shift in the, in the spiritual nature of our country, that people would see their need for Christ, that people would see that you are a God who reigns and rules, and that we only have hope in you, and that all of life is ordered correctly when we see that. And I do want to pray, Lord, for those women or couples who are in that difficult situation of an unplanned pregnancy. I pray, Lord, that as the church, we would have such compassion and grace for them that we wouldn't see this just in political terms. We would see these are people that need to be cared for. And so, Lord, I pray that would be us as a church, that we would continue to hold fast to the truth in Scripture about the nature of life, but also, Lord, that we would be open-armed and warm-hearted, Lord, and that we would seek to do good work and care well for those who are in this situation. And we do pray, please, for greater protection for those babies who cannot uh, fight for themselves, clearly. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in Luke 14 today. If you're new here with us, uh, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Today, we find ourselves in chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Uh, I want to begin by telling you about a man named Sir John A. Franklin. We even have a picture of him. He's a good-looking guy. I think we would all agree. Uh, He was an English officer, and uh, he, in 1845 led a mission that was uh, left from England, and their goal was to find a passage, kind of the Northwest Passage, uh, through the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. So this was a big deal. They had two big ships, three-masted sailing ships. Each ship uh, had an auxiliary uh, coal-powered steam engine, 
right? They each, each one of them they brought along with them. Uh, one of the ships had a library with about 1,200 books that they brought with them, just in case the officers, about 100, 130 officers wanted to do some reading. They had crystal wine glasses. They had uh, engraved sterling silver tableware. Uh, one of the ships had a pipe organ on the ship, just so they could listen as they, as they sailed. So, I mean, no expense was spared. They'd done a lot of preparations for the voyage. What they hadn't done, however, is actually think through the harsh realities of Arctic travel. So they only had coal supply for about 12 days. Uh, they didn't have any ice-breaking tools, and they, they didn't have any winter clothing. Uh, what you see them wearing is probably what they wore as they embarked upon this, this Arctic journey. So the sad, the sad reality is that everyone on this expedition perished. Within two months, uh, they were ice-bound uh, in the ice somewhere up, uh, you know, in our, in our lands in the, in the northern Canadian wilderness. And eventually, the Inuit people would, would find them. They'd find tents with like 30 frozen bodies in it or another couple of people trying to drag a smaller boat across the ice. I mean, it was, it was disastrous. And if you think about the nature of this journey, at the beginning, they had all been very enthusiastic, all excited about this adventure, uh, all excited about the prospect of success. But the truth is that they were doomed even before they left the port of England because they had failed to properly consider the difficulties that lay ahead. And I bring this up because uh, as we continue sort of reading through the Gospel of Luke and the ministry of Jesus, we see a similar sort of enthusiasm from a lot of the people that were following Jesus. Uh, here's just the first, a little bit of our text, just the first half verse, verse 25, says, now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds of people were following Jesus. They, they were excited. They were excited if you would have asked them, what, what are you excited about? I'm excited about following this, this good teacher. They loved his teaching. They loved his miracles. They loved hearing about the kingdom of God. Great crowds followed Jesus. Other rabbis at the time, I mean, that would have been enough. I mean, how, how great. That's what every rabbi wants, a huge following. A lot of people hang on their every word. But Jesus knew the difference between a crowd of people and true disciples. He knew that, I mean, anyone can get a crowd, right? Street performers can get crowds. Big you know, people gathering around, excited. That, that's great to a certain extent, but that's not the same as, as a disciple. See, Jesus didn't want spectators. He wanted genuine followers, people who were genuinely devoted to him. And so, in our text today, he takes the time to tell his disciples, or those people who would like to be disciples, look, this is what it actually takes. This is what it, it looks like to be a disciple. And so his words were clearly for the people there, the crowds back then, but they're for the church of all time. Anyone, even today, who is, is a disciple or is interested in being a disciple of Jesus, we should pay close attention to, to what Jesus is saying. So the, the big idea, the big theme for this morning is the nature of a true disciple. We're going to see three things in our text. The first one is this. A true disciple is someone who loves Jesus more, right? The nature of a true disciple is that you love Jesus more. And if you're wondering more than what, well, let's take a look. First couple of verses, I'm going to kind of go through it in chunks this morning. Uh, here's verse 25 to 27. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we'll stop there for the moment because clearly uh, we need to talk a bit about this, these words. Uh, this is some, these are pretty shocking words, especially in that day. Right? You can imagine Jesus turning around and saying that and people would have been like, what in the world is he talking about? Hate your family? Hate your own life? Bear your cross? I mean, they knew what a cross was. They knew what it could do. So here we see Jesus dramatically raising the bar in terms of what it means to follow him. But it's really important that we understand what he's saying and, and what he actually means by what he is saying. Because he's intentionally being kind of shocking. He wants to grab their attention. But what he means is clarified by looking at uh, teaching from the rest of Scripture. For example, when he says that you're supposed to hate your family, right, hate your brothers, hate your sisters, he, we have to understand what he means by that. Because if you look at the rest of Scripture, there's, there's a lot of verses about loving those very same people. I mean, the greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor, uh, love even your enemy. We're, we're told that we should, as Christians, be a people who love, who love everyone. Uh, specifically towards our family, we're, we're told that we'd, we shouldn't despise them. That's the kind of hate that he's talking about here. We should honor them, right? The fifth commandment is that children should honor their mother and father. And in Ephesians, it talks about children obeying their, their parents. So, so clearly, there's a lot of emphasis in Scripture about, about honoring, obeying, loving your family. So it, it can't mean here that Jesus is saying, like, despise your family. Turn your backs on them, like, hate them in that sense. He also isn't saying uh, that we should neglect our family. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says uh, this very clearly. He says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what Jesus is saying here is not, you know, despise your family, not neglect them, not never see them. He's not saying that at all. What he's, what he's talking about, he's trying to make a point. Right? He's talking about comparative degrees of affection. What he wants us to understand is, is that to love him, to, to follow him, means that we're going to put him above everyone else in our lives. In a sense, we're going to love him so much that we would, it's as if we hate everyone else in our lives. That's, he's putting an emphasis on how much we are to love him, not so much you should actually hate the people in your lives. But why is this? I think would be a fair question. Like, why, why is it that he's, why can't we just love, why can't we just love everyone, right? Love, love our neighbors, love our family, love God, just kind of, you know, why does there have to be this, this sense of hierarchy of love? Well, a couple things. Number one, you know, the nature of our faith is revealed by what we put first and what we put second. Family is rightly positioned as one of, I mean, it's the building blocks of our, of our culture, of our civilization. Even, even if we're not super close with our family, uh, we can still recognize the value of family, right, in, in general. And we can see the challenge of putting them second yeah, for, any, for any reason. But there are some reasons why, as a follower of Christ, you, you, you would have to put your family second. For example, uh, you might feel called to ministry. It may be that growing up, 
Your mom, your dad has always said, you know, here it's important to get a degree. It's important to have this profession, doctor, lawyer, in the trade, something that's going to provide well for your family. And then you come one day and say, I think I'm, I think I'm supposed to go into ministry. And that may be very disappointing, even for parents that are followers of Jesus themselves. It may just be, there's a huge disappointment there. That's a difficult conversation to have. It may be that you're called on missions. And, and you're going to need to say to your parents, look, uh, your daughter-in-law, your grandchildren, we're going to Africa. You're not going to see them. And these could be followers of Christ who all of a sudden are saying, are you, are you sure this is what the Lord wants for you? Like, have you heard from an angel? I just need to know because you're taking my grandchildren away. That's a difficult thing. And of course, there are even more difficult situations when it comes to family. You, you may have been raised with a faith other than Christianity. In a, in a different culture, Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, and, and you may have come to the point of seeing that Jesus is Lord, and now you're really at odds with your family. I remember one time, uh, years ago, I was running a day camp uh, at Willington Church, and there was uh, an older boy there uh, who came forward. We had an opportunity, if you want to know more about Jesus, uh, come and we'll pray with you. And he came and we, we talked about the gospel, and he had a, a Muslim background. And uh, he, he wanted to follow Christ. And I said, you know, how is your family going to feel about this? Are they going to be upset? And he said, yes, they're, they're going to be very upset. And I said, well, what are you going to tell them when, you know, you say, I, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a Christian. And he kind of thought about it for a moment. He said, well, I will tell them that it's true. And that, that really is the essence of what it means to have a conviction of faith, right? That, that it's true. That if it's true, if Jesus is who he says he is, the God of the universe come in human flesh to die for our sins, now resurrected, then if we have faith in that, in him, we're going to put him first. He's going to come before everything else. And if you think about it the other way, if we believe that to be true, but we don't put him first, then it says something about our faith. Right? It's, it's a test, in a sense, of, of who we really are as, as disciples. The other thing, about this teaching from Jesus that we should recognize is that, you know, there's something, it's actually for the good of our family if we put Jesus above them. Like if he is actually true, if he is actually the only hope for humanity, then the most loving thing we can do for our family, even, even if they're at odds with us, even if it causes conflict, is for us to follow Jesus faithfully and to show them, look, this, he is the savior of the world. He is my savior. Here's the difference that the gospel makes in my life. See, the mark of love is, is not that we always do what people want or what makes them comfortable or just that there's peace, in a sense, in the home. It's that we do what's best for them. So if you're in that situation where there's, there's tension than your families or friends or whatever it may be because of, of your faith, keep in mind that you, we aren't just called to have a superficial peace as peacemakers. We really want for them to have peace with God. And so it, it will be necessary for us to put Jesus first for them to see that for our own soul and, and for the sake of their soul as well. Now, the same is true for our lives, right? Jesus doesn't just say hate your family. He says you can even hate your own life which if you're new to the church seems, I mean, it seems illogical. How would I hate my life? My life is the essence of who I am. So how can I put anything above my life? Then I would be dead. And how could I receive any benefit from this thing that I'm putting above my life? Well, the way to understand this 
is to see that in the Bible, it talks about different kinds of life. Uh, if you haven't seen this before, here's John 12, 25. Again, this is Jesus speaking. And it's similar to what we see in our text. He says this, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so you can see there, he's talking about two different kinds of life. He's talking about uh, life in this world, right? That's the first kind. And then he's talking about eternal life. And so life in this world, obviously, is, is our physical life, our natural life. It's the, the life that everyone around us, every human being is living and is acquainted with. But eternal life is a spiritual life that comes by the power of God. Where our, our hearts are, are open. We receive faith. We receive the gift that God has given us. And we, are, we have a new life that endures forever. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, you need to, you need to hate the other life, the earthly life, because it's tethered to sin. It's only going to lead to death. It's corrupt. It doesn't bring you any long-lasting benefit. But the other kind of life, rooted in Christ, it, it bears eternal fruit. And so if we understand that, then we can see why Jesus is saying we need to hate our own life. He's saying hate the earthly life, the life we were born with, in a sense. Because he wants to give us an entirely new life. And this is central to what it means to be a true disciple. That we would understand that this isn't like just a, you know, a small renovation project that God is doing in our lives. Um, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. I think he articulates this very pointedly. Uh, he writes this, Christ says, I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think most innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. All of it. Why? What, why? I mean, there's some parts of our life that seem all right, that seem valuable. Family would be one of them. That seems like a good thing. Why would, why would Jesus be saying that he wants all of it? Well, because... At the core of that earthly life, there's a corruption that will lead to death. But also practically speaking, right? We are practically, we are disciples of the things that we live for. And so if there are other things in our lives, even if they're good things that we prioritize above Christ, then we are going to end up really, we're disciples of those things. So a close family is a good thing, but if that's the focus of our life, then, then we're idolaters. A healthy body is a good thing. But if that's our identity, we'll, we're going to die without hope. That body will eventually die. A fulfilling career, all the other good things in life, if we live for those things, we are lost. So what Jesus is trying to do for the sake of the, the crowd, he's trying to confront the spectators and say, look, don't you want to be a true disciple? Where you actually put me first. You love me more than all the other even good things in your life. Not be, it's not because he's a narcissistic leader. It's not because he just needs everyone to love him the most. It's because he actually is the hope for all of humankind. And so the most loving thing that he will do is to say, you need to have all your affection upon me. I, I am the source of your hope. You can't put anything above me or you lose everything. And the other thing he says is that you don't just need to prioritize your life in terms of loving me most. You need to be ready to suffer for me. This is, this is verse 27. 
He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the cross always means suffering and death. I mean, that would have been very clear to the people back there, clearer than it is for us even. But what he's really saying, not, not just that you will literally um, die on a cross, what he's saying is that the nature of true discipleship is that there will be suffering and that there could potentially be death for the sake of your faith. And it's not hard to see that this has marked the church throughout all the centuries. That at many, many times, many, many places to this day, there are situations where disciples of Jesus are, are, are forced or asked to renounce their faith and, and they, they won't. They say, no, Jesus is more important to me than my very life. There's one account uh, from a, a man named Hugh McHale I came across. He was a, a Christian in the 1660s in Scotland where many of the Protestants were being put to death because of their faith in Christ. And he was taken captive, he was tortured, and he was executed. Uh, but his dying words, are, I think, are insightful for us. They're recorded, and I'll put them up on the screen. He said this just before his death. He said, Farewell, father and mother, friends and relations. Farewell, the world and all delights. Farewell, meat and drink. Farewell, sun and moon and stars. Welcome, God and father. Welcome, sweet Lord Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Welcome, blessed spirit of grace, God of all consolation. Welcome, glory. Welcome, eternal life. Welcome, death. You know, it's clear from those words, I think, that he, Hugh McHale was ready to die for his faith before he was called to do it. You know, I mean, he lived at a time when, when it was more perilous uh, to be a faithful Christian, but he clearly thought it through. So when it came to the, the point of actually uh, testing his love for Jesus, his love proved true. He proved faithful. And the thing we should be thinking clearly in light of what Jesus is saying here is, is what is going to happen when our love for Jesus is tested? Like, will it prove true? Will we prove faithful? And if you aren't experiencing this kind of test now, it, it will come. There will be many situations in different areas of our lives, in, in work, at school, with family, where, where there's a test. And, and the test really is, will we, will we love Jesus more than others? That, again, doesn't mean we hate it doesn't mean we're, we're irritable, that we're, we're difficult, that we're somehow abrasive. It means that we are filled with the spirit of Christ and that when it comes to it, we will always put Christ first, but that we will exhibit all of the love and care of Jesus for those in our lives, even those who have opposed us. And we should be ready for it. That's what Jesus is saying. You should be ready for this. And if you look back through history, we really should be ready for it. There's been enough centuries that have gone by, you'd be hard-pressed to find any true disciple of Jesus that didn't suffer, that wasn't called on to, to put him first, didn't have to make difficult decisions. That's, that's the nature of true discipleship. We love Jesus more than anyone or anything in the world, and eventually we suffer for it. And so what Jesus is saying is, if that is true, you should, you should think this through before you become a disciple. You should count the cost. That's our second point about what it means to be a true disciple. We, we need to love Jesus more and we need to count the cost. And to help us understand this, Jesus gives uh, two kind of mini parables. Uh, this begins in verse 28. I'll just read this next section. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So two examples which are basically sort of saying the same thing, which is fairly common sense. You don't, you don't do any major project, anything significant, without first thinking it through. Uh, it's funny, actually on our street, we live on Blue Mountain Street, there was a, there was a lot uh, that for about 20 years just had the foundation of a house. Uh, they started building and then they stopped. Uh, we, we weren't sure why. We always talked, was it permits, was it money? Uh, but we mocked them. What Jesus is saying is true. We would we'd be like, how would you, why would you start building a house and then two decades go by, the house isn't there, how does that make any sense? Eventually they built it. But, but this is true. Right? It, it's foolishness to not think things through. Anyone who's built anything knows that this, this is true. Same thing. Uh, apparently, I don't know this firsthand, but with war, apparently, right? If you're going to engage in battle, what he's saying would make sense. You would, you would sit back and you would calculate the costs of the battle, which is part of the reason why Vladimir Putin looks so foolish. He's not only maniacal and evil, he's a fool. He clearly didn't think about what he was doing before he invaded the Ukraine, and it's evident. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the way reasonable people, thoughtful, true disciples don't think that way about their faith. He's saying you need to think it through. So you need to do the math, in fact, is the way I would interpret this. Here's what I mean. You should, if you know uh, those math equations where uh, it's like a greater than equation, you have like a circle, we're going to do this. So here, here it is on the screen. You have a circle and you would have like one number on one side, one number on the other, it's like 10 and 5, and the 10, it's like the pi, the alligator, right, is, that's greater than. Jesus is saying in a sense, this is what you should, you should be thinking things through. You should be crunching the numbers to see what's greater. On the one side, you would have your earthly life and everything that goes with it. All of your wealth, all of your possessions, all of your comforts, all the things in this world that you enjoy, all of that is on one side. On the other side is Jesus. And with Jesus comes a lot of, he's telling us, suffering, difficulty, tension, challenge, hardship, hardships, but also heaven. If you're really going to crunch the numbers, you need to think it through, not just from this life's point of view, but from eternal life. An earthly life, no matter how great, is going to end in eternal death and hell. That's the product of sin. But with Jesus, we have the prospect of heaven. And so what Jesus is saying is, in light of eternity, you, sh you should be crunching the numbers, figuring out which is, which is greater. And if you do the math, it, it's, it's Jesus, right? Which way is it? Oh, that way. This way. That's, that's, if you're thinking things through in light of eternity, that's what you should arrive at. Hugh McHale, right, suffered terribly, died early, but he gained peace with God and life eternal. He, he benefited in the end. And Jesus is saying, as a disciple, this is true, but a lot of people begin the road of discipleship without doing the math, without figuring it out. And so they begin down the journey, maybe because, you know, they came to a church service that seemed great. They know some Christians that seem, you know, peaceful and nice, nice people, and there's a lot of benefits, and so they do that. But then things get difficult, and they say, whoa, I didn't, wait, I didn't know this was going to be hard. And, and often they, they step back from faith. 
And Jesus is saying, that, that's, that's foolish. At the very least, that's foolish. But also, why not, cal- why not figure it all out ahead of time so that you're prepared? The other thing about this whole dynamic that I think we struggle with, because there may, I think there's a lot of us in the room, we've done the math. We, that's, that's why we're here. We get it. It's going to be hard, but we're into it. But there's a part of us, I think, in our minds and hearts that often wonders, okay, but why does it, why does it have to be so hard? Like I, the math checks out, Jesus, I get it, right? I know the verse, I know the song, I don't want to gain the whole world, lose my soul, I, I'm in. But, but why, why is it so difficult? I mean, why if Jesus did everything for us on the cross and has paid the price of our sin, why, are, why do we still suffer now? Like, why are we still getting persecuted? And the short answer, which is important to know the answer, is that through the difficulties and challenges, our faith is proved true. We we see whether we are genuinely rooted in Christ. You can think about it this way. Think of uh, a child who's raised in a, a family with a lot of money, like very, very wealthy, and they, I mean, they spend their money, right? So this child has grown up, big houses, great vacations, always the latest gadgets and toys, always people to do everything for them, lots of servants, lots of many material blessings. Uh, many people would say, that's a great life. That, that, they have that money, why not spend it? That's, that's fantastic. But, but I think we know that there's some dangers in that kind of life. And the main danger is what all of that ease, the easiness of that life, what it does to that child, what it does to their character. Because there's a high degree of likelihood that they are going to grow up as ungrateful human beings, entitled human beings, self-centered, weak. They're going to be insufferable adults who always expect life to be easy because it's always been easy. So how do you prevent that? It's difficult. You You can't just prevent that type of character from developing by telling them that they're suffering in the world. I mean... They can read books, they can read biographies, that might be a good thing. But to really counteract that, to shape their character, they need to experience it to some degree. They need to work. They they need to suffer. They need to endure. They need to to feel the weight of life to appreciate life. And see, the same is true for us as children of God. We have a very wealthy father. He has given us everything that we could ever need, and the promises of more. We have houses in heaven, mansions in heaven, streets of gold. We're called royal priests. He's given everything to us that we could ever need, and there's a challenge in this, that we would be entitled, ungrateful. We would, we would not see it for what it truly is, and that's actually, if you look through the Old Testament, that is the challenge with the Israelites. Right? God creates a people and gives them everything saves them from Egypt, gives them rules to live by that will make their their lives peaceful and good, leads them to the promised land. And what's the response from the people? Doubt, complaint, right? What does Moses say? God, how long with these people? How how am I gonna? They're insufferable. They're they're totally spoiled brats all the way along. And now in the New Testament, it could be worse because we have even more blessings in Christ. We know the reality of the cross. We know all our sins are taken away. We know the the sure uh, hope of heaven. We have the spirit of God within us. So how is it that we too will not take all that for granted? And the answer 
The answer is that in God's sovereign wisdom, he has orchestrated our life with hardships so that, so that we will feel the weight of it. See, Jesus, he did all the heavy lifting for our salvation. There's nothing we need to add to that. But we are to work out our salvation, which involves challenges, involves disappointments, involves real hurt. What we need to understand is that this, this isn't punishment on God's part. This isn't neglect on God's part. This is love. It's a gift that we need to struggle in this life in anticipation of the life to come because we draw near to the Lord. Like we come to really appreciate who Jesus is and what he's done. And you see this, you see this in the teachings, especially in the New Testament, for the early church. You see this in James, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when there's, when there's trials. Why? Because you're gonna grow in, in your character. It's gonna be good for you. Here's another passage in 1 Peter, speaking about the, the blessings that come through, through this kind of persecution, through bearing our cross. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying as a disciple, this, this is part of what it means to be a disciple. This is part of the blessing of, of living a life following Jesus, that we are gonna experience some of the things that Jesus experienced. And when we do that, we are going to appreciate it, understand what it means that he's our savior all the more. Life is gonna be difficult, is what Jesus is saying, as a disciple. If it's, if it's not already, it, it will be. We should expect it, and we should understand that it's not, it's not just something to endure, it actually is still for our good that he actually is still loving us and active in our lives in the midst of it. So he wants us to be prepared. He wants us to see it means, to be a disciple means loving him the most. It means that we count the cost so we know what to expect. But it also means that we would endure. There's a last couple of verses where he, he, he sort of tags this on. I'll read it and then and tell you the point. Uh, verse 34 and 35, it's another little mini parable. He says this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the third thing uh, about the nature of being a true disciple is that we need to stay salty, is how I'm going to say it, okay? Stay salty. Um, there's a cooking show that I watch uh, called The Chef Show with this Chef Roy and John Favreau, they like make all sorts of things. And one thing I've noticed over the many episodes I've watched is that Chef Roy, he's the really trained chef, he is not afraid of salt. I mean, he, he seasons his things. And he says, you have to season at every stage of the cooking. So as he's heating up the water, he's got salt in there. As the vegetables are going in, adding a little more. When they come out, he seasons a little more. And then just before he serves it, he adds more. Because it's going to taste amazing, right? If they're, now, what Jesus is saying is, maybe not from a health point of view, but from a flavor point of view, salt is good, right? We, we like the taste. It's good for us. Um, but if salt has lost its taste, then what's the point? He's saying you might as well throw it out. Now, chemically speaking, 
uh, salts, you can't, like it's either salt or not salt, right? It's going to taste salty. But we know that salt can be diluted. It can be mixed to the point that it, it doesn't taste salty anymore. And so his point is, look, what's the, what's the point of having salt on the table if it, if it doesn't taste like salt? And likewise, what's the point of being a disciple if our commitment to Jesus is diluted or bland? Like if there's no flavor, what's the point? Because this, this often happens. If you think about it, he's talking about the full spectrum of discipleship. When you begin uh, in the middle and then near the end. Because, because what happens a lot of the times is people are excited to follow Jesus. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to put him first. The gospel's on our lips. And then over the years, life gets difficult. There, there are challenges or disappointments. There are, there are tests of our faith. And we don't necessarily renounce our faith, but, but the flavor is kind of gone. You know, the enthusiasm is gone. The, the focus on Christ is gone. And what, what Jesus is saying is that's, that's not a real faith. And the challenge of this is that it, ha- it, it tends to happen over time, in my experience, uh, that, that you kind of don't see it happening. Uh, I, I was meeting with someone recently, and, and they said this very thing. They said, you know, I, I don't quite know how it happened, but if I look back over the last year, couple years of my life, I've, I've really stopped praying. I've really stopped reading my, my Bible. And as we started to talk about it, you know, what happened is there are just other things that took priority. Uh, other things that this person began to see as more important. Not, not even consciously saying that they're more important than God, but just in the way that they lived, in the focus. And what Jesus is saying is, look, that goes against the essence of being a disciple. That it should never be the case that there are other things that, that take priority. We should always love Jesus more. We should always be in that place where we're, where we're seasoned with the gospel, that people can, if they were to taste us, taste the truth of Christ in our lives. And that comes with counting the cost, expecting what is to come, and then actually living it out, persevering with that full flavor. The last verse I want to read again is verse 33, where he says, So therefore, any, of you, um, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." I mean, is there any more extreme calling than that? To say, everything I have, Jesus, everything. Again, not that we, we throw it all out, but that we recognize there needs to be a priority of affection. And that in that priority, there is, there is actual love that, is, that we receive from the Lord and that we're able to show others. Now, today we have a, a great way to end off this, this passage, this teaching about discipleship, because today we are we're having a baptism in the 1130. So we don't have, there's a tank there, uh, but if you want to see the actual baptism, please come back for the 1130, for the 1130. Uh, but the woman being baptized, her name is Shadi, and, and as you're going to hear a testimony in just a moment, we're going to play it, you're going to see a lot of these elements, that she's someone who comes from a, a different faith background, Muslim background from Iran, and yet came to see that Jesus is Lord, and now is taking the steps of discipleship by saying, look, I live for you, Jesus. My hope is in you. So it's so encouraging to be reminded that this is true of of all of us, that that baptism is a picture of this. Jesus, my life is now in you. I'm dead to sin, alive in you, and I've been made new, and so I can live that way. So we're going to, we're going to watch the video, and then uh, the band's going to come up. We're going to respond in worship together. There'll still be prayer. Uh, But my hope for each one of us is that for wherever areas that we're feeling 
bland in a sense, that we would remember that in Christ we have everything we need and that people should see that and taste that in our lives. So let's, let's watch together. در یک خانواده مسلمان به دنیا آمدم خدایی که در دین اسلام شناختم خدای خشم و غضب بود من به شدت از این خدا می ترسیدم ولی هرچه بزرگتر شدم دیدگاه هم نسبت به خدا تغییر کرد و باور داشتم خدا مهربان است و مرا دوست دارد من مسیح را به عنوان پیامبر می شناختم خدای مسیحیت همان خدایی است که باور قلبی من از خداست ولی در, ایران، در ایران نمی توانستم با توجه به قوانین اسلام مسیحیت را دنبال کنم تا زمانی که مهاجرت کردم و از اونجایی که خواهرم مسیح را بیشتر از من میشناخت تا حدودی با مسیحیت آشنا شدم ولی هنوز احساس نمیکردم که مسیح را کامل میشناسم تا اینکه همراه خواهرم به کلیسای ترایسیتی رفتم اولین حضورم در ترایسیتی که با شنیدن سروده های پرستشی شروع شد حس عمیقی را در قلبم به وجود آورد که شروعی تازه برای شناخت مسیح بود و جرقه شد برای آشنایی عمیق از مسیحیت که در کودکی به آن علاقمند بودم اکنون بدون ترس و استرس از قوانین سخت کشورم اینجا میتونم آزادانه دین خود را انتخاب کنم هرچه بیشتر با مسیحیان آشنا میشوم برای دانستن کتاب مقدس و مسیحیت مشتاقتر شدم یک روز که در کلیسا حضور داشتم در هنگام خواندن سروده های پرستشی از مسیح خواستم که در راه شناخت مسیحیت به من کمک کند از آن به بعد اشتیاقم برای رفتن به کلیسا یادگیری کتاب مقدس بیشتر شد در خود و زندگی هم تحولی احساس کردم بویی هدیه ای از طرف خداوند به من داده شده است تا بیشتر با مسیح آشنا شوم و به سمت نور و روشنایی هدایت شوم امروز که در این زندگی قدم میگذارم خوشحالم که میدانم هر بار که مسیح را صدا میکنم تا به من کمک کند او اون او آنجاست او شبان من است من کاری نکردم که لایق زندگی او باشم با این حال او مرا دوست دارد من نجات یافتم من دوباره متولد شدم این را از کارهای خدا در زندگی خود میدانم یوحنا باب ده آیه ده دوز نمیآید جز برای دوزدیدن و کشتن و نابود کردن من آمدم تا ایشان حیات داشته باشد و از آن به فراوانی بهرمند شوند